All right, welcome to the crossings. You guys awake? Who said no? It was prom yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah? All right. Uh, let's see here. Isaac, come on down. Come on, buddy. Did they tell you we were going to do this to you? Okay, well, good. You're prepared. Guys, this is Isaac. Say hi, Isaac. All right, here you go, buddy. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, anytime somebody makes a commitment to follow Jesus, we want to publicly acknowledge that. This past week, Isaac made a commitment to follow the Lord and was baptized. Um, and so we, as his church family now, have a new baby believer among us, and our job is to be good brothers and sisters to him. Um, and so we want to thank you for making that commitment, dude. It's the biggest decision you're ever going to make. Uh, and that material I gave you is some really important stuff that you, the guys that studied with you are going to keep going over with you, okay? So welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, today, we are talking about failure. Uh, because we are an imperfect people, failure is going to be a constant in our lives. It's going to be one of those things that we have to deal with. Uh, and that's, it's good to know that because the only one that was perfect that went through life and just nailed it was Jesus. We're not expected to do that. That's part of why we need to lean on him, and it's part of why it's a good thing God is merciful. Amen? You guys remember what a good definition of mercy is? It's undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. Undeserved grace. You say, I don't deserve God's forgiveness. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve to have the good things God has in store for me in life. And God says, yeah, I know. That's why it's mercy. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy anymore. And that's good news for us, right? And the night Jesus was arrested, uh, we looked at the Easter story last week. We know that two of his friends uh, experienced massive failure. Well, all of them, really. All of them, except for John, abandoned him. But two guys in particular are pointed to in the scriptures and in the Easter story as especially failing in a, in a major way. One was Judas, and one was Peter. And the failure that those guys experienced was similar in nature. One straight up betrayed Jesus... The other betrayed Jesus through denial. Judas betrayed Jesus by actually going and, and getting Jesus' enemies, uh, giving them intelligence on where to arrest him and where to find him. And, I, you know, if you study the scriptures, it's likely that his motives were to get Jesus to act because he believed Jesus was a military leader and this was going to somehow spur Jesus to action. And so Judas was going to have this, this powerful position in, as part of Jesus' inner circle. That's what a lot of Bible scholars think were probably his motives. And then, of course, Peter uh, denies Jesus. Why? Because after Jesus is arrested and Peter sees what's going to happen, he follows at a distance. And then when he's confronted by people who are like, hey, weren't you that guy that was with him? He's like, no, 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 three times. And then the rooster crows. And, of course, this was predicted, as we'll see, by, by the Lord. And so he knows ahead of time uh, that this is going to happen. And anyway, we're going to talk more about that. But both of these guys experienced failure, but the difference is the way they responded to their failure. Judas was a really bad example of how to respond to failure, while Peter, even though he failed, is a good example of how to respond. And so today we're going to look at uh, how we should respond to failure, how what we can learn from this story, how we can apply it to our lives. Um, and we're going to ask three questions. First of all, we're going to ask today's, in today's lesson, what causes personal failure in your life? What causes it? Um, 
There are three things that caused Peter's failure in his life. And, and the same thing is, the, the same things are what causes failure in our life. Uh, financial failure, business failure, marriage failure, relational failure, spiritual failure, all these different kinds of failures that we experience in life are really caused by some of the same things. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to ask the question, how do I recover when I failed? Not just what causes it, but what do I do when I failed? And then we're going to ask, how does Jesus respond to our failures? How does Jesus show us mercy in the midst of our failures? So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Let me pray. God, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for your grace, and thank you for your mercy. Thank you for our church family in which we get to feel your grace. God, through imperfect people. And an imperfect church, God, where a perfect God works. Thank you for the blessing of a relationship with you and a relationship with others. I pray as we open the word today, God, that we will remember it's not just about reading the Bible. It's not just about going to church. It's not just about checking it off our to-do list. When we open the scriptures, Lord, we want to apply this to our lives. We want to be changed as a result of what we see when we open the Bible, we're opening up your mind, and we want to align our mind with yours. So help us do that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What causes my failures? Three things Peter did wrong. You've got some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, it's going to have most of the scriptures we're going to look at on there. Um, and the first spot for you to write something down is this. The first cause of your failure is, number one, I underestimate my enemy. I underestimate my enemy. We're going to read together Luke 22, 31 and 32. Go ahead. Simon, Simon, how Satan has pursued you, that he might take you part of his harvest. But I pray for you. I pray if your faith will hold firm, that you will recover from your failure and become a source of a strain for your brothers here. Okay. When you have James Earl Jones in your church, you let him read the Bible to you, okay? Uh, Satan is strong, Satan is smart, and Satan is strategic. You need to remember that. He's strong, he's smart, and he's strategic. And if you think you're smart, raise your hand. Okay, that guy right there. Jim thinks he's smart. Uh, that's not his name, by the way. Um, you, Satan is smarter than us. He, he has, he, he's way smarter than we are. He's got, we cannot outsmart him. You know what we can do? We can rely on Jesus to outsmart him. Because we're not going to. Never think that you're smarter, stronger, or wiser than your enemy. He will chew you up and spit you out again and again if you think that way. And Simon is a guy, as, as strong as he was in some areas, guys, he was a guy who struggled with pride. As we see, Simon Peter is a guy who struggled with pride. He thought he was stronger than he was. How many of you have ever thought you were stronger than you were and gotten in trouble for it, okay? I remember when I was 15, I played football for a couple of summers. I had lifted weights. I decided I could beat up my brother-in-law. Tim when Tim came over for Thanksgiving that year when he pushed me around and guess what I stood up to Tim to beat him up and guess what Tim did he turned me into a pretzel I learned I wasn't as strong as I thought I was you've had similar things happen and guys that's kind of funny we were just wrestling around being stupid but there have been times in life when I thought I was stronger than I was and I, I really got my butt kicked in life 
I got chewed up and spit out because I thought I could put myself in situations where I wouldn't give in to temptation. Or I thought I could put myself around friends who were, I struggle with addiction, by the way. I thought I could put myself in, around friends who were engaging in, in behaviors that would potentially influence me. I've, I've gotten chewed up and spit out more than once because I was stupid because I thought I was stronger than I was. Don't underestimate your enemy. You guys understand we have an enemy out there. We have an enemy. The Bible presents Satan as a real person, not just a figment of your imagination. And the cartoon Satan that you see with the pitchfork and the, and the, and the devil suit, that is not Satan, okay? That's a, that's a caricature. That's not the real dude. The real dude is bad, and he'll chew you up and spit you out. When you're engaging in spiritual battle, you need to approach it humbly. You need to understand you're not strong, you're weak, that you need help. And this is one of the things Peter really messed up in. He experienced failure because he thought he was a lot stronger than he was. Okay? We can do the same thing, and we do the same thing. Secondly, you can, understand, you can under, underestimate your enemy, number one. Secondly, you can overestimate yourself. I overestimate myself. I overestimate myself. We're going to read Luke 22, 33, and 34. Lord, what are you talking about? I'm going all the way to the end with you, to prison, to execution. I prepare to do anything for you. No, Peter, the truth is that before the rooster crows at dawn, you will have denied that you even know me. Not just once, but three times. Okay. If you ever find yourself thinking or saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? Jesus, are you sure that you got this right? Jesus, let me counsel you on this because I need to correct your opinion on something. If you ever find yourself thinking or talking that way, you need to stop. Because you're out of line, right? Uh, that's the situation that Peter found himself in there. Have you ever prayed and counseled God, right? You know, I, I throw that out there a lot because it's something we do a lot. We want to pray and we want to counsel God and we want to correct God sometimes. Don't do that. We need to be humble and we need to, we need to not to overestimate our opinions or what we think. Peter here thought he knew a lot more than he did. Not only did he think he was a lot stronger than he was, he thought he knew a lot more than he did. When he starts correcting Jesus. That's dangerous to wade into that territory. Matthew 26, 31 through 35 says it this way. Jesus said, tonight every one of you will desert me. For the scripture says that when the shepherd is killed, the sheep will be scattered. Then Peter boasted, but Lord, even if everyone else fails you, I will never deny you. Jesus replied, Peter the truth that is before the, this night is over and before the rooster crows at dawn, you would deny knowing me three times. Peter insisted, but Lord, I will never do that. Even if I have to die, I'll never deny. Even if I have to die, I won't do that. You say they're going to come and get you. Lord, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to take care of that. I'll die before I let them come and get you. Now, the thing is, Peter was bold, right? What did Peter do when they came to get Jesus? He pulled a sword out and lopped some dude's ear off. Okay, he's the only one that did that. He didn't just bolt. He was bold, right? He pulled a sword out and he whacked a dude upside the head with it. Jesus told him to stop and he picked up the guy's ear and put it back on his head 
I bet he became a Christian later. Uh, you know, I would, right? Uh, but he, as much as we kind of talk down about Peter, because he is a bad example in some ways, you've got to say he's bold, right? He was the only one that got out of the boat. Whenever Jesus was walking on the water, he was the only one that got out of the boat. Okay? And he walked on the water for a minute. He ended up sinking because he took his eyes off the Lord. But, man, the guy was bold. you got to give that to him. But sometimes those of us who are bold, we could be bold about the wrong things. Just like stubborn people. Is anybody in here hard-headed like me? Okay? You hard-headed people in this room, you stubborn, you pointing at your wife, you stubborn people. You know being stubborn can be a good thing as long as you're stubborn about the right stuff. When you start getting hard-headed about the wrong stuff is when you get in trouble. Peter was hard-headed a lot of times about the wrong stuff, right? Now, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna progress, though. He's going to grow. Um, and he should, give us, he should give us hope in that. His boldness, though, was a strength. But one of the things I heard a wise man say is if you are strong in an area, you've got to be real careful because a strength if you're not careful, can turn into a double weakness. And what he meant by that is you can take your strength and you can start using it for bad things. Do you guys know, like, I'm a professional speaker. I was a professional speaker before I became a Christian. I used to have a radio show in a couple of different major markets. Do you know how many people I influence for bad with just the gift of speaking? A lot. Now, we have people that are gifted in business. We have people that are gifted in the arts. Guys, some of, some of the great artists, dude, you, you want to know what Snoop Dogg would be great at? Preaching, if he would give his life to the Lord. You want to know that's what his grandmama told him he would do whenever he got older, as he was, God was calling him to be a great preacher? I read that in his autobiography. He believes his purpose on life, and yes, I've read Snoop Dogg's autobiography. You guys are like, what? Yeah, uh, I did. His per- he believes his purpose in life is to lead people to the Lord. I read it. He believes that. Now, is he living it? No. He's smoking blunts and hooking up with women. Okay? But he's, he's charismatic and good at what he does. He's just playing for the wrong team. Right? It's a double weakness for him. And I could give you a lot of examples like that. People take a strength and it's a double weakness because they're playing for the wrong team. For Peter, his boldness could be a double weakness when it gets out of line. So you got to keep be careful with, with, with your gift, guys. There's always a dark side to your gift. Okay, God has gifted you to do some cool things. You need to understand there's a dark side to that if it gets directed the wrong way. So be very, very careful. And be careful thinking this could never happen to me. You know, because that's what Peter was thinking in this moment. Jesus is coming and saying, hey, man, come on. Come on, uh, this, is, this is all about to happen. Peter's like, no, that's not going to happen to me. I'm, I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm not going to abandon you. And Peter says, Peter, you're especially, you're going to do it three times. You're going to have three opportunities to make it right, and you're going to do it three times. Peter said, that's never going to happen to me. Look at what 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says about the attitude that this could never happen to me. So be careful. If you are thinking, oh, I would never behave like that, let this be a warning to you for your for you too may fall into sin. Paul says it right there, okay? Paul says it right there. That would never happen to me. You guys know Paul's story, right? You know, Paul was a guy who was on fire for the Lord. But the thing is, he got in with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, uh, he was one of their 
like major headliners. He was, he was the young Pharisee of the year because he was the guy that was going around routing out the Christians. They thought Jesus was a false teacher. They thought Jesus was a threat to their power. And so Paul zealously starts defending what he believed was the correct version of the faith, which was the faith that the Pharisees were touting around. He thought he was honoring the Lord with what he was doing. Now, he was getting some pats on the back, and he liked that. So there was a mixture of motives. But he's an example of a guy who probably got up in the morning thinking, I will never do anything to dishonor the Lord, not knowing he was going after the people the Lord had put in the earth to follow Jesus. Like, okay, that's jacked up. Now, Jesus came down from heaven, blinded him, knocked him off his horse, beat him up a little bit, which sometimes you need to get beat up by Jesus, right? If he beats you up, it's because you need it. And then he goes and, and turns his life around. But he's one of those guys that is like, yeah, I thought I was on the right path, and I just realized I was not, right? He learned humility the hard way. How many of you guys in here have learned humility the hard way? I raised my hand real high on that one. You gotten beat up? And knocked off your horse and blinded by Jesus and beat up just a little bit, you know, kind of a little dismal. Yeah, you need that sometimes. Don't be so self-confident because given the right situation, any of us are capable of great sin. That's me and that's you. Don't ever think you're exempt. Don't ever think you've made it. Given the right circumstances and the right situation, you will do things you never thought you would do. And so you got to be careful because Satan is strategic. And he will incrementally introduce things into your life that over time will put you on a path that leads you way far away from where you want to be. Guys, it could be through tragedy. It could be through all kinds of different external circumstances. It could be through an addiction. It could be through a marriage failure. It could be through an infidelity. It could be through a business transaction where you're being a little shady. It could be through all kinds of things. So just be careful. Stay humble. Pride says that could never happen to me. What does Proverbs 16, 18 say about pride? Pride precedes destruction. And arrogance and nasty fall. Pride precedes what? Destruction. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> destruction. Destruction and a fall. You don't want to be destroyed, right? That's, that's like on the bad category. Pride precedes destruction. Thirdly, so you don't want to overestimate yourself. You don't want to underestimate your enemy. Thirdly, I distance myself from Jesus. How do I fail? What leads me to failure? I distance myself from Jesus. Luke 22, 54 through 57. Go ahead, Mike. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kinded a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant, girl, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Okay. Now I want you to notice in 54, the very last sentence in 54, it says, Peter 
followed at a distance. Go ahead and underline that on your notes because that right there is the problem. That's the problem. Peter is distant from Jesus. Now, he had just spent three and a half years with Jesus following him around. But when the pressure got turned up, he denies him. And what was the cause of this? What was the cause of Peter's distance from Jesus? Well, he's in this situation, he's more worried about the approval of others than he is anything else in that moment. Okay? He's more worried about what the people around him are thinking than he is about honoring Jesus. You guys see that? What do we call that? We call that people-pleasing, right. We call it insecurity. That's what, that's what drives this need to please people is when you feel insecure inside and you want to present yourself a certain way because you want the approval of people. Guys, searching for the approval and seeking out the approval of people is dangerous. It's dangerous. And it's easy to become a people pleaser in a religious environment, by the way. Because a lot of times when we struggle deeply with insecurity and then we become a Christian, we give our life to the Lord and we're baptized, we baptize our idol. Because now we get approval because if I go to this group, if I do this Bible study, if I read my Bible every day and let everybody know it, well, then I get to start getting positive affirmation and pats on the back. Guys, it's good to encourage one another, and it's, it's not bad to want that. Like, we need affirmation. We need encouragement. What becomes bad is when we make that the point. And if you make the approval of others the point, guys, that is going to knock you off track because people are fallible. People are imperfect. And when you start trying to please fallible and imperfect people, you're going to start to do fallible and imperfect things and call it good. And we got to be careful, guys. we got to make sure that we're, we're seeking to please an audience of one. And here now, if Peter were genuinely in this situation just concerned with pleasing Jesus, would his actions have looked a little bit different? Absolutely. He would have told the truth. Instead, he lies three times. He says, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. And then the rooster crows. And right when that rooster crows, he makes eye contact with Jesus, who he was distant from, but still close enough to see. And in that moment, and in that moment, The words of Jesus came back. You're going to deny me three times. No, I'm not, Lord. I'll die before I do that. It happens. It happens. This is a setup for failure for him. This following at a distance thing is a setup for failure. This surrounding himself with people who don't love Jesus, people who hated Jesus, And trying to please them, that is a setup for failure. And that's a setup for failure for Peter. Guys, it's a setup for failure in your life, if that's where you're at. When it comes to worrying about the opinion of others, whose opinion matters more, people or God? You just need to ask that question. Whose opinion matters more to me, people or Jesus? That's going to determine a whole lot. When we get to where people matter more than us than Jesus, we call that an idol. An idol is something that is more important to you than God. That's all it is. It can be anything. 
It could be money. It could be success. It could be your career. It could even be something good. It could be your, like your kids and your family. You can make that an idol where they're more important to you than pleasing God. You say, well, I'm a family man. Okay, your family is an idol if you care more about them than pleasing God. And guess what's going to happen to your family? You're going to teach them that they should make family more important than God. And so, yeah, you guys are going to be together all the time. You're going to have the functions. You're going to have a happy home. You're going to sit around a table and eat. And guess what? You're not going to make the impact with your life that God wants you to make, and you're going to be judged for it because you worshiped an idol your whole life. When you have idols in your life, when you make idols the center of everything, Jesus gets edged out. Guys, Jesus is the source of everything good. Why would you edge the source of everything good out of the center of your life? You know, you say that's just a recipe for disaster. When you start doing that. And if you struggle with insecurity, guys, have you ever asked yourself why you cringe at any criticism? Those of you that are insecure, you just can't handle any correction. You can't handle any feedback where people are like, hey, you need to do this this way. Guys, that, that's just, that's insecurity. Have you ever asked, why am I such a coward when it comes to being different around people? That's insecurity. That's all that is. And if you struggle with insecurity and people-pleasing, guys, there's always a wound behind that behavior. There is always a wound behind that behavior. Let me say that again. If you struggle with people-pleasing and insecurity, there is always a wound behind that behavior. You may not even be aware of it. But I guarantee you, at some point in your life, you have been abused or you have been traumatized, or you have been bullied, or you at some point were made to feel less than. None of you were born like that. If you struggle with insecurity, you weren't born like that. You were made that way by something that hurt you. Peter, I guarantee you, had something in his past that hurt him, that made him feel less than, that made him insecure. You need to be aware of that, not because it's good to go back and dwell in the past, but it's good to know that the stuff that happened in your past provides the basic building blocks for the sin that you're going to struggle the most with as an adult. You just need to be aware of that. That's going to help you get better. Struggling with the opinion of others, making too much of the opinion of others is a recipe for disaster. Proverbs 29, 25. Go ahead. It is dangerous trap to be. Yeah. It is a dangerous trap to be concerned with all, what others think of you, but if you trust the Lord, you'll be safe. All right, it's a dangerous trap to be concerned with what others think of you. You see that? Did you know the Bible said that? Is this new information for you this morning, guys? This is serious. It is a dangerous trap for you to be concerned with what others think of you. Now, this could be, I'm, I'm, I'm really sad because so-and-so thinks this of me. It could also be, I'm really mad because so-and-so thinks this of me. Okay, I don't care if your expression of insecurity is despair or anger and pride. It's still insecurity. If you can't take a freaking correction from somebody, you're insecure. 
If you turn into a whiny baby every time somebody corrects you or you just get mad, you're insecure. You care too much what that person thinks about you. And that's a trap. That is a recipe for failure. That's a recipe for your getting mad and leaving or disconnecting or staying and being fake. That's all that is. That's why it's so dangerous. Because you start acting, either play acting as a hypocrite, or you're just mad all the time and you disconnect from everybody because you're ticked off. It's the same sin, it's just a different expression of it. And what it will do is it will keep you from connecting to people because fake you isn't the real you and angry you won't let anybody get close to you. You see how that works? It's insecurity. It's a dangerous trap. It keeps you from connecting to God and people. You either are fake or you're angry. That's it. That's it. You don't want either one. Peter, Peter expresses both sides of the fence. Sometimes he's kind of fake. Sometimes he's pretty angry. But it's all insecurity, right? Now what's awesome and what's amazing is God uses him despite this. God gives grace to him despite this. Jesus tells him before this stuff even happens, you're going to fail worse than everybody, but I'm going to restore you and I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to use you. Guys, if you're feeling a little convicted this morning by what I'm saying, don't take that for anything other than what I mean it by. God will use your jacked up mess of a life. And God will meet you where you are in grace and mercy and he will, he will take you and he will transform you and he will use you to help thousands of people if you let him. It's not hopeless. It's never hopeless with the Lord. Isn't that good news? That's awesome. So take this for what I mean, how it's meant, okay? God, this whole series is on mercy. God will work with you despite your mess. He'll take your mess and turn it into a message. That's what he'll do. So what should I do when I fail? Here's three things Peter did right. What should I do when I have failed? Well, first of all, number one, I grieve my failure. I grieve my failure. Grieve your failure. Don't hold back. Let it out. Don't justify it. Don't make excuses. Don't brush it off. Don't minimize it. Don't talk about it like it's not a big deal. Just grieve it. Lean into the grief. You say, I don't like the way it feels. You're not supposed to. Grief sucks. It sucks. If you've never grieved, some of you in here are young. You haven't experienced grief. Grief sucks. It is unpleasant. Lean into it because it's designed by God to do a work in you. Matthew 26, 25. Go ahead, Mike. When Peter heard the rooster crow, he remembered that Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you deny me three times. Then Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Okay. Underline wept bitterly. Underline wept bitterly. The Bible teaches that Jesus predicted ahead of time Peter was going to fail him like this. And whatever Peter did in Luke's account, 
Peter looked after denying him that third time and the rooster crowed. He looked and it says the Lord looked at him. And I can just imagine him making eye contact. And in that moment, Peter denies it, looks, makes eye contact with Jesus who he loved and who he knew loved him. Can you imagine how that felt? Have you ever had a sinking feeling in life? Okay. Have you ever had a sinking feeling in life? I've had sinking feelings, guys. I remember getting pulled out of a car by the police and, and getting my hands put up on the, the trunk and, and then getting frisked. And I know I've got dope in my pocket. And as that cop is moving his hands down, I feel him grab the outside of my pocket and kind of wiggle it around. I'm like, oh, that's my bag of dope. That's a sinking feeling when you know you're going to jail. That's a sinking feeling. But let me tell you what, that's not nearly as bad as the emotional failure feeling. That's even worse. When you've wronged somebody, when you've betrayed somebody, and then they know it, and you know that they love you, but you betrayed them, and you make eye contact with them, and you see the hurt in their eyes, right? If you've ever failed a spouse, or if you've ever failed a child, you know, I could just see the addicts among us who stole out of the kid's piggy bank because that was all the money they could scrounge up. Man, what a crappy feeling that is. What a crappy feeling that is. When you screw up, you just feel like a piece of trash. And in this moment, Peter screwed up real bad, and he just felt like a piece of trash. And he runs out of that courtyard where all those people were, and it says that he wept bitterly. Guys, that's grief. That's grief. Grief is not pleasant. We don't like the pain. The pain is not pleasant. Emotional pain and anguish is the worst kind of pain. Guys, I, I take physical pain all day. I've had some bad physical pain in my life. That gallbladder that I had that used to have that went bad. When, when, you're, when your organs and your body start to shut down, it causes some pain. That's the little check engine light coming on. Something's wrong. You go to the ER and they give you morphine and, and, and it doesn't even touch it. Like, give me more. We can't give you more. You'll die. Please give me more. I'm willing to risk it. This is driving me crazy. Didn't even touch it. I've broken bones. It didn't, didn't, didn't even come close to how bad that hurt, right? But you want to know what hurts worse? Emotional pain. When I started dealing with the abuse that happened to me when I was a little kid, I was molested very severely. Uh, when I started dealing with that stuff and talking about that stuff, when those memories started to come back, and I started to remember time after time after time and thing after thing after thing that was done to me that I just kind of stuffed for years. When I started hearing other people's stories of abuse and things that moms and dads did to little kids that just messed them up. You want to talk about messed up emotional anguish? I've never experienced pain like that. I would take the gallbladder hundred times over the emotional pain. The stuff that keeps me up at night is the, is the, is the emotional stuff. And uh, that's what Peter was experiencing. It wasn't physical pain. Physical pain is bad. But what hurts worse is the emotional pain. 
the emotional pain of betrayal, the emotional pain of injustice when something deeply, deeply wrong has happened. Either when you're the perpetrator or the one who had it perpetrated against them. It's just a different kind of pain. And, and what do you do when you're hit with something that hurts so bad? Well, you grieve. That's the only thing you can do. You grieve. You don't justify it. You don't say it's all going to be okay. It's not. Some of the stuff that happens to us guys in life, some of the stuff that happens, and I don't mean for you to take this the wrong way, but there is stuff that will happen to you in life where you're not going to be okay. You're never going to be okay. There's always going to be scars. There's always going to be pain from that. What you can be is healed despite it. But it's not going to be like it never happened. You are not going to be okay. But God can still use it. He can still use it. What is a tendency, though, a lot of times is instead of grieving pain, you want to know what we do? You, you want to know one of the things that makes me sick? A lot of times we're, we're, we have a class here called Wounded Heart, uh, and it's for people that suffered childhood sexual abuse. Uh, we have those for men and women. Uh, one of the things that we do as part of the therapy in that support group is we share our stories. And one of the things that I hear over and over and over for abuse victims as children is their family's reaction when they were made aware of the abuse. You want to know what the normal reaction is? in a family when they hear sexual abuse has taken place? It's the sweeping under the rug. That didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. Or in a church. No, that didn't happen. That wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, they didn't really, it, you'll be okay. You know how many times I hear that? Very rarely do I encounter a case where somebody actually took action, where a family actually took action. It happens occasionally, but very rarely. Most of the time, it's, ah, you'll be okay. And for a little kid to hear that or to get that message from their family, it's like they were raped all over again. Frankly, the trauma is, is horrible from that. And so we stuff it. Guys, we do that with abuse cases. We do that with other things. When you're hit with something and, and you you're really, really you feel really, really bad, instead of leaning into it and grieving it, we stuff it. You want to know what happens when you stuff your pain? You get the point. If I opened that, what would happen? You guys were painfully aware of that, and you know me well enough to know I might do it. <laughs> These chairs are expensive. Otherwise, I would. Uh, that's what happens, guys. You, you will spew. Eventually. Now, if you stuff your grief, you're either going to spew all over everybody around you or you're going to spew all over yourself when you stuff it. What did Judas do? Same level of betrayal. What did Judas do? He stuffed it. He was ready to pop. He stuffed it. What happens when we stuff it internally? That's where you get suicide. 
That's where you get self-harm. That's where you get cutting. That's where you get uh, young ladies and young men putting themselves in situations where they're going to be abused. And they do it knowing that they're going to go into that and get abused because they're stuffing their pain internally. What happens when you let it spew on others? This is where you get abusive husbands and abusive moms and dads. This is where you get predatory behavior. This is where you get somebody that's so full of anger that they're, they're going to express that grief, but they're going to do it in a very unhealthy way. And they're going to harm everyone around them. That's the only way to go, guys. It's going to come out one way or the other. It's going to come out. But if you don't handle it right, it's going to come out in a very unhealthy way. What we see Peter doing when, when it says that he went out and wept bitterly is exactly what he needed to do. He needed to weep bitterly. And you want to know what else he did? He didn't stay by himself. He didn't stay by himself. Because that's another thing Judas did. Judas isolated himself. He had all this stuff inside. He was ready to pop, and then he isolated himself. And next thing you know, he's committing suicide. Peter has all this stuff inside. He runs out. He weeps bitterly. And then the very next thing you see is Peter is surrounded by his friends. And they're weeping together. That's a different way of handling. That's two different ways of handling failure. Grief is the way through failure. You need to grieve it. Psalm 51, 17. Go ahead. The greatest sacrifice you want is a broken spirit. God, you will gladly accept a heart that is broken because of sadness over sin. You guys see what that says right there? It says God will gladly accept a heart that is broken over sin. The worst thing you can do is deny what you've done. The worst thing you can do is minimize what you've done. If you abused your family, you need to admit it and you need to grieve it. You say, I don't want to talk about that because I want to weep every time I talk about it. That's why you need to talk about it. You need to weep. Because what you've done is stuff that. And you think that crap had not gone out of your heart? Your heart keeps score, guys. Sweeping it under the rug isn't really sweeping it under the rug. It's just filling your heart full of darkness. I know. I've done it. I know what it feels like. It doesn't lead anywhere good. you got to air this junk out. you got to grieve it. You need to weep. You need to wail. You need to moan. I love the way the Jews would grieve in the Old Testament, where they would just make a show out of it. So everybody knew that was going on. They'd tear their clothes. They'd go get ashes and throw it all over themselves. They'd get sackcloth, which was used to carry potatoes around. And they'd make clothes out of it. And they'd cover themselves in dirt where they look homeless. And so somebody comes along and they see the rich guy looking homeless. Man, he's grieving something. That was healthy. They just wore it on their sleeve, literally. But in America, what do we do? We hide. We want to look like we got it all together in America. We want to pop our earbuds in and watch a couple more episodes of Netflix in America and pretend like everything's okay. We want to stuff it. Stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. You're going to spew. It's either going to be internally or externally, but you're going to spew. And it's going to hurt 
you and others. 100% of the time, we have got to learn to grieve it. Grief and pain before God is unpleasant, but there is no shortcut around grief when you've failed. When you have failed, you have got to learn to grieve. James 4, 9 and 10. Go ahead. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. All right, guys, this is a promise from God. When you have failed, you let there be deep grief. You let there be sorrow. You humble yourself before God. And what does it say God will do? He will lift you up. Guys, that is a promise from God. When you've screwed up, you grieve it, you give it to God, you humble yourself before him, you cast yourself on his mercy and prayer, and it says he will lift you up. That is a promise from God. You humble yourself before him, he will lift you up. That's what Peter was doing when he was weeping bitterly, guys. You want to think, what do you, you want to think he wasn't praying? God, please forgive me for what I've done. God, please, please forgive me for what I, you want to think he wasn't praying that? I guarantee you he was. And I know for a fact he was because of the way the story turns out. Because God doesn't leave Peter here. He doesn't leave Peter in his grief. What should I do when I failed? Number two, I turn back to Jesus. I turn back to Jesus. The thing with Jesus that you can take to the bank is his door is always open. If you've screwed up, if you've been unfaithful, if you failed... Just like that prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son where the prodigal goes out from the countryside, lives wildly until he's in the pig pen, right? God's got a pig pen for every prodigal. He winds up in that pig pen and then he comes back and what's the dad doing? He's waiting on the porch for him. That's what Jesus is like. When you've screwed up and been unfaithful, when you've turned your back on God, when you've walked away, when, when you have failed and you know it, guys, Jesus' door is open. It's open to you if you'll come back. I turn back to Jesus knowing, check this out now, knowing that Jesus is praying for my return. Knowing that Jesus is praying for my return. Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. Simon. Do you know that Satan has asked to have you all stiff like wheat? But I pray for you that you may not lose your faith. Okay. Now, Jesus said this to Peter before Peter had failed him. You guys notice that? Before Peter even failed, Jesus is saying, hey, I've been praying for you. And that's how Jesus prays for you. He was praying for Peter ahead of his failure. God's posture toward us is always one of grace and mercy. You guys need to understand that. When we turn back to him in repentance, his posture is always one of grace and mercy. God is waiting with his arms open to you. No matter what you've done, you just have to come back to him. That's his posture toward you. Also turn back to Jesus knowing that Jesus has a purpose for me after my return. Jesus has a purpose for me after my return. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. Very next verse. Yes, when you have turned back to me, you must strengthen these brothers of yours. Okay. Jesus says, I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me. I'm going to restore you, and then I'm going to turn around and use you to bless others. 
You guys understand now, if you come to the crossings, we talk about this a lot. Your life is not just about you. Whenever you come into a relationship with Jesus, the purpose of life is becoming like Jesus. And what was Jesus all about? Jesus was all about helping. Jesus was all about healing. Jesus was all about being compassionate. Jesus did not condone sin, but he also didn't condemn people who were struggling with sin. What he did do is he helped people change. And that's what we're supposed to be. That's what this is supposed to be, a community full of little Jesuses who are not condoning sin. We're also not condemning people who are struggling with sin. We are striving to help people change. You guys get that? You are uniquely gifted by God to do some things that I can't do. And your neighbor is uniquely gifted by God to do some things that neither me or you can do. And the idea is that in the church, we learn how to develop those gifts and develop those talents and deal with our weaknesses, but use our strengths to be Jesus to other people. So when you become a Christian, you're saying, I want to learn all about Jesus. I want to learn what he's like. I want to learn how he thought. I want to learn how he treated people. I want to learn how he healed people. I want to learn how he blessed others around him. And I want to be like that in my life. And so life then becomes this adventure where you're figuring out what God's purpose is for you. And because God designed you and God knows better than you, life, according to his standards, is actually the best one you can have. How many of you guys want to have the very best life you could have? How many of you guys just want to be losers and want your life to suck? Nobody raised their hand, right? Uh, Everybody wants the best life they can have. The best life they can have is had when you do life according to the design that God has put in it for you. There's a person that God has created you to be. There are things that God has created you to do. When you get on this journey with Jesus, you start figuring out what that is, and that's an adventure. And what you're going to see as a result of living that life in the wake of your life is you're going to see a bunch of people who now are living their best life because they're walking with Jesus. And the retirement plan is really good. It's good. It's an adventure. Jesus calls you to adventure. Jesus was calling Peter to adventure. Peter says, man, I messed up so bad. Jesus says, I'm going to restore you despite your mess up, and I'm going to help you become a blessing to the people around you. I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what we see him do here. Now, if you keep reading the story of the New Testament, you'll know Peter was not perfect even after this. He still screwed up a few times. He would open his mouth just to stick his foot in it. He needed a shoehorn. He just needed to carry it around because he was constantly, in his boldness, saying things he shouldn't say and do things he shouldn't do. But man, God still used him powerfully. Later on, the Apostle Paul is going to get in a big fight with him because of the way he was treating some people because he was still insecure. But God continued to use him despite all that. And so understand, guys, you and I, we're not going to be perfect. We're still going to jack things up sometimes, but God will use us despite that. His grace and his mercy, it's not like a one-shot stop. Like, he keeps giving it to us, man. Isn't that good news? You can screw up more than once. Oh, that's good, because I probably am. Right? You are too. You are too. Peter would come to understand God's mercy firsthand very, very clearly, and that's why he would write this in 1 Peter 1.3. 
because of his great mercy, God has given us a new life by raising Jesus Christ from death. This fills us with a living hope. All right, because of his great mercy, because of his proclivity to give people what they don't deserve and to give them, give them blessings they don't deserve and to withhold wrath they do deserve, right? His mercy. Because of that, he's given us a new life. Do you want a new life? Do you need a new life? Guys, a new life is found in Jesus Christ, the source of it. He is the source of life. He is the source of light. He is the source of everything good. He has a monopoly on it. You're not going to find good outside of it. If there's good in the world, it's because it came from him. And if you want the best life you can have, if you need a new life today, it's found in him. It's found in him. We're going to take communion this morning. Uh, we had uh, our men's retreat this weekend, uh, so we normally take communion in our small groups, um, but uh, several aren't meeting today because of the retreat we had. Uh, so we're going to take that. We, we take communion every Sunday, either here in the assembly or in our small groups. But the reason we do that is because Jesus told us to. Whenever he got together with his friends, uh, right before he was arrested and crucified, uh, they were having a meal together that was part of the Passover holiday for the Jews. So they had wine there, they had bread, they had a few different elements. Well, at one point in the meal, while Jesus is sitting around a table with his 12 friends, he took some bread and he broke it and he gave each one of them a piece. And they were like, what's going on here? And he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. I want you to take this bread in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup of wine and he passed it around. He said, each one of you take a drink. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's going to be spilled for you. I want you to take this in remembrance of me. And they wouldn't have understood what he was talking about at the time. This would have been kind of a weird Jesus thing where they were like, eh, okay, sometimes he says things we don't understand. This would have been one of those times, right? But later, he's arrested. He's tried. He's flogged. He's beaten, he's spit on, he's mocked. His body is broken as they nail him to a cross. His blood is spilled as they nail him to a cross. Now his friends wouldn't have been thinking about this communion meal. In that moment, you want to know what they were doing? Running. Most of them. Peter following at a distance, denying him. John, the only one that stuck by with his mom, with Mary. And John and Mary stood at that cross while Jesus was crucified opposite two criminals on his right and his left. And they would watch the crowd mock him. They would have watched the religious leaders come and make fun of him. They would have watched as he was spit on and as little kids threw rocks at him and as people were being mean to him. And, and the, the criminals are sitting there cussing people and trying to pee on the crowd and spitting at them. And that's what criminals did at crucifixions. It was a horrible scene. But Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, anytime he opens his mouth, it's to bless or it's to talk to God. Or it's to quote a song from the Psalms, right? He kept his mind right even in the midst of all that pain. Guys, I can get a little bit hungry and be a jerk. Jesus hung on a cross and prayed for his people that put him there. That's a high standard for me. Right? 
He hung there. And this communion thing didn't make sense. Wouldn't have made sense. The bread and the wine, they weren't thinking about that when that was going on. But then, guys, three days later, boom, he's back. And he's messing with them. <laughs> he's appearing in the middle of his friends alive and then just disappearing and stuff like that. Like, he's doing some funny stuff. He was having fun. And then he spent about 40 days with them, messing with them and playing pranks on them, having fun. But then he's also opening their mind to the scriptures, it says. And he helped them understand how the whole Bible tells a story about him and how he's about to be promoted to king of kings. That's what we call the ascension. The glorification when he goes up to heaven and he says, I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to be made the king of everything. And then someday I'm going to come back. In the meantime, in that, in that time between my leaving and coming back, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the paraclete. You guys go and form the Jesus Club called the church. I want you guys to be my hands and feet out in the world. I'm going to work through you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, just to, like, just like I worked when I was walking the earth, I'm going to work through you, but I'm going to multiply my efforts because it's going to be all you guys' hands and feet. You're going to be my hands and feet in the world. And you're going to go out and touch lives. And every Sunday when you get together, I want you to take that bread and that wine. And I want you to remember you serve a God who made himself a human being and loves you so much he came into the world and died a horrible death because he didn't want you to doubt how committed he was to you. And so suddenly communion, boom. Wow, that's what it means? And so whenever the early church would get together on Sundays, you guys want to know why they got together on Sundays? They used to get on Saturdays with the, with the Jews. That was the Sabbath day. It was a Saturday. It was not Sunday. Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so the early church started getting together on Sunday specifically so they could take communion. And they would take the bread and the wine and they would take that to remember we serve a God who loves us so much he was willing to give everything he could to prove it to us because he knows we want to doubt him. If you guys would understand how much God loves you, how much he adores you, how you are priceless to him, you feel like this world doesn't love you, it doesn't. If you were ripped off in your life, if you feel like you've been treated unjustly, if you feel like uh, life has just given you a raw deal, it probably has. Because this world is broken. But guys, that is not what God wants for you. And if you would just know a little bit how much he loves you, it'll change your life. And that's what communion is meant to help you understand. God loves you so much. He wants you to have a great life. And that doesn't mean it's life that's free from pain, but God will equip you to deal with it. And he will work through you to help other people learn to do the same thing. And that is the best life you can have. That is the purpose of your life. And it starts with your knowing how much God loves you. And that's what communion's all about, okay? I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing a song and pass the elements. We're gonna pass some bread. Just remember as you take that bread, this is Jesus's body that was broken. As you take that juice, remember Jesus's blood was spilled for me. We serve a God who loves you, who's willing to give his all for you, and he wants you to know it, and he proved it on the cross. God, thank you so much for bringing us together today. Help us to remember your love as we take communion, and help us to remember, help us to internalize how much you love us, God, because I know that'll change our lives. Help us to believe it, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
What should I do when I failed? Number three, I get connected to a support group. I get connected to a support group. Now, it's interesting, one of the first things Jesus did after he started his public ministry is he started a small group. He got 12 young men together with him, and these young men were together with him for three years. Peter didn't do life alone with Jesus. Now, that's important. You guys need to understand that. Because we weren't designed to do life alone. For the first 300 years of the church, did you guys know there weren't church buildings? Do you know that? The first church building wasn't built until the 300s. The early church, the earliest church that started in the first century met in homes. Now they met in public spaces from time to time, but it was rented. And honestly, the expression of the normal, average, everyday church was in homes for the first 300 years. Now that's weird to us because we see church buildings on every corner. That's just kind of how we've learned to do it. There's nothing bad about a building, but what can be bad about a building is it's impersonal. Because you come in and you stare at the back of somebody's head. That's not what Christianity was designed to be like. Christianity is relational. Christianity is familial. Christianity and the church is meant to be built on relationships and friendships. People who are moving the same direction, trying to follow Jesus, but doing it together, not alone. But we're independent in the United States. Our country was built on the idea of independence, right? We like our independence. We like being able to go home, not have a porch on our house because we don't design houses with porches anymore because then our neighbors might come over, right? Those are houses that were built in the 50s. We don't do that anymore, okay? We don't want to celebrate birthdays together with our neighbors because, you know, you used to do that. You'd, if somebody had a, a birthday in the neighborhood, everybody would celebrate together. You guys that are younger are like, what? Yeah, it was like that. People used to talk to their neighbors, right? Now we have not hi-fi stereo systems that blast the music out. We need earbuds because we want to listen to our music. And you can listen to your music. And when I go to Jake's house with a bunch of you college students and there's a room of 40 people in the basement and not a single one of you are talking to each other because every single one of you are on your phone, that's weird to me. When I walk in there, you're living in individual land. Ooh, ooh, look, at, look at this. This is how you interact. Look, a meme. <laughs> that's like your interaction, right? Guys, that's weird. And church ain't meant to be like that. Church is meant to be a place where you're present with the people around you, where you're interacting, where, you're, where you have friends that you talk to. That's church right? And you're doing this life thing moving toward Jesus, moving that direction, and you're falling down together. You're messing up together. That's church, right? That's why we emphasize the importance of being part of a small group here at the Crossings. Because that's what church is supposed to be about. It's about friendships and relationships. We were designed by God to be together in life. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. That's a myth. It's not a thing. Now, Peter experienced this massive, massive failure. We just read that he went out and wept bitterly after this massive failure. 
Judas experienced massive failure. We see what he did. He isolated and ended up committing suicide. Peter wept bitterly, and then he didn't isolate. Mark 16.10, somebody, uh, somebody named Mike, read that, please. Mary Magdalene went and found the disciples together, grieving and weeping. Boom. The word together. Together. Underline that. Together. They just experienced the biggest failure they had ever experienced, and where did they end up? Were they by themselves? No, they were together. They were together. And what were they doing together? Grieving and weeping. They were sad that their mentor, their rabbi, their friend had been killed. They were sad and feeling guilty that they had all been cowards and run away, except for Peter, who stayed at a distance and then still failed. They were sad, but they were together. They were together. Do you like people to see you cry? Okay. What do you want to do when you cry? You want to run and hide. Now, I've got children. There have been multiple occasions where something has happened to make one of my children cry, and they start doing the, you can start kind of seeing it, and then they run away, like to their room and slam the door. Like, what did they do that for? Because they want to cry. They don't want anybody to see that. It's, un it's uncomfortable. Not too long, I was talking with my wife, and I started doing the thing. And she was going to come over and hug me, and then I knew I was just going to be done. And she did that, so I got up and ran out of the room because I didn't want to cry. Who likes that? I probably needed to, honestly. But who likes that? None of us like that. But here they are together, crying and weeping bitterly together. Look, if you're going to do it, just do it. If you're going to do it, just do it. Just get it over with, right? And do it together. Is it fun? No. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Is it healthy? It's what you were designed to do. It's how you were designed to work. When you're sad, you cry. You don't stuff it. We've, we've done the Coke thing, okay? Don't forget that. It's healthy. They were together. When you go through a major failure in life, you've got to resist the temptation to isolate. When you get laid off, when you experience financial failure, when you experience failure in your marriage, when you experience moral failure, the worst thing you can do is isolate. And what you do when you get together with a friend and carry that burden, you get them to carry some of that burden is you cut your problem in half. Now think about that. You've got a burden, you need to cut it in half. Galatians 6.2. Go ahead. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the laws of Christ. Okay, now that's a command, guys, to the church to carry each other's burdens. Cut your problem in half. Share it with your friends that love Jesus. Your godly friends, not your heathen friends. I encourage you to have heathen friends. Just make sure you get those in the right place, okay? Um, I have lots of heathen friends. They're fun. Uh, we were created for community, and your small group should be a basic part of your life. We're running out of time here, so I'm going to wrap this up, okay? John 20, 19, and 20. Go ahead and read that. Sunday evening, Easter, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. He showed them the two wounds of his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Okay, guys, now this is 
Sunday. This is after Jesus had been killed on Friday. Where are the disciples? They are together. It says they were behind a locked door because they were afraid of the authorities. They killed him. They might kill us, right? So they were hiding, but they were together. And then Jesus does this thing where he just sort of, what is it, Nightcrawler and X-Men? He can, he can like warp. Well, Jesus just sort of warps in the middle of the room and probably does this, ah! like that, uh, and scares them all, which he, he did it to somebody before this too. He was a funny guy, right? So he's messing with his friends, but my point that I want you to see is they were together. They're together, right? And I'll tell you, I've been a part of a small group for about 20 years now. And Jesus has never appeared in the middle of my small group and gone, ha, like that. (laughs) But Jesus has shown up in my small group. He's shown up in people's lives by us seeing prayers answered. Or or I've, I've seen marriages get healed. I've seen people overcome addictions. I've seen people who had no idea how to raise kids learn to be really good parents. I've seen relationships healed. Guys, I've seen people uh, forgive their mom and their dad and, and have a healed relationship with them. I've seen people get problems taken care of. I've seen people who can't pay their bills get help from their friends and avoid stuff like bankruptcies. I've seen all kinds of stuff in 20 years. Jesus hasn't appeared in the very middle physically, but man, he's appeared in so many more ways. It's because I was part of that community, that small group community. I've seen the grace and mercy of Jesus bring light and life into people's lives through small groups. It's important. Matthew 18, 20, what does that say? For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Do you guys know the Bible said that? When you get together with your friends who love Jesus and you're getting together in the name of Jesus, guess who's there with you? Jesus. And this was something that was so important. This togetherness was so important. This wasn't just an isolated thing, right? John 20, 26, what does that say? A week later, the disciples were together, again meeting in a home. Look at that. A week later, they're still what? Together, right? Don't underestimate the power of together. When you're getting together with your friends who love Jesus, you're getting together in the name of Jesus. Jesus says he's there together with your group of friends. That's your small group. It's not some program. It's not something that, guys, this is just a basic function of the church. This is not some system that we came up with. This is Jesus Christ and his ministry. We emphasize small groups here at our church, our imperfect, jacked-up church, because Jesus emphasized it in what he started. And it's what we see in the Bible. And it's what we saw in the first 300 years of the church. If you've never come to a church and really jumped in a small group, you don't know what you're missing. And that's all it is. It's a group of friends who love Jesus who are trying to do what stuff we see in the Bible. That's all it is. It's nothing, don't, don't complicate it, okay? It's nothing more than that. But God works through that. Why? Because Jesus is present in it. That's why. And when you experience failure in your life, which, guys, make no mistake, you will experience massive failure in your life, either now or later. 
you're going to need a support group like what Peter had. And guys, Judas, isolated, you see how that turned out. Peter didn't isolate, and God uses Peter in a powerful way to bless the lives of others. Two failures, two outcomes, two approaches. What are you going to do? You've got a cardstock piece of paper in your bulletin. Um, It's got an opportunity for you to respond in there. Uh, Go ahead and pull that out. Uh, We offer a lot of different resources at the church that will help you. I invite you to look that card over, and if there's anything we can do to help you, know that those are kept confidential, uh, but we will follow up with you, and we will seek to help you. Uh, One of the things that I want to call your attention to also in your bulletin is there's a card in there that says Miracle of Mercy on one side, and on the other side, we have Miracle of Mercy groups. You have only missed one meeting so far. If you didn't make it to a group last week, I invite you to come to one this week. If you're saying, I want that community like what you were talking about toward the end here. I want that support group of friends. I want to invite you to attend a Miracle of Mercy group this week. We have several for adults. I lead one of those groups. Uh, We've got one here in Collinsville. We've got one in Troy. We've got one in East Alton. Uh, We would love for you to attend whichever one of those you'd like. If you want more information, Max Wave. That's Max back there. He's one of the guys you can talk to. June, John, Wave. John and June are over there. You can talk with them or you can talk with me or Ariel. Is my wife in here? she with kids? Okay. Um, If you know Ariel, you can talk with her. You can talk with me. We would love to get you connected. If you're in the college ministry, if you're college age, Jake, Katie, can y'all wave? They will hook you up if you want to go to a college group. Uh, If you're a teen, junior high or high school, Alameda, Emily, give a wave. You can go talk with them. We want to get you connected this week. If you haven't been coming to a group, you need to go to a group. You need to have this kind of community in your life. You need to know that the door is open. And guys, the most growth I've ever experienced in my life happened as a result of small groups and getting in with friends who helped me follow Jesus with him. If you're not connected yet, you need to get connected, okay? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song right after this. That'll give you an opportunity to fill that card out. Then we're going to sing one more song after that to close, and we're going to pass some baskets, and you can put your card in that basket, okay? I do invite you to respond. Thank you guys for coming. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together today. Help us to understand God, that failure is something we're going to have to deal with in life, but it's also an opportunity for some of the greatest growth that we've ever experienced, God, because you work through failure. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.